Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 107. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Now and again, we catch wind of a news story that we think you ought to know about. We call this Drabble News. Check this. MSNBC.com. One of the most deadly spiders in the entire world has been found in the produce section of a grocery store. A grocery store in Oklahoma. An employee of Whole Foods found the Brazilian wandering spider on Sunday, wandering around a batch of bananas from Honduras, and he managed to catch it in a container. The store's manager said that spiders often find their way into imported produce, but that the store regularly checks its goods to make sure that the deadly arachnids are 100% organic and pesticide-free. The spider was given to University of Tulsa Animal Facilities Director Terry Childs, who says that this type of spider kills more people than any other. Childs says a bite can kill a person within 25 minutes, and while there is an antidote, he doesn't know of any in the Tulsa area. This summer... Just when you thought it was safe to advertise your status with the purchase of overpriced organic products. You're telling me you're out of valerian root supplements? I want to speak to your manager. Just when you thought it was safe to pick up hot hipster soccer moms at the juice bar. Has anybody ever told you that you have beautiful skin? You must use all-natural goat milk soap. Just when you thought it was safe to self-consciously work on your spreadsheets in the cafe with a skinny soy latte by your side. This grocery store is the best office ever. They're back. Mmm, tofu. What the? Huh? Something's... Something's crawling out of my portable yoga mat. It's... It's a deadly Brazilian wandering spider. It's not locally grown. This summer, pain goes green. Grocery Store Horror 4, Death by Natural Causes, coming to a theater near you. Is it just me, or does this feel like a targeted, deadly, creepy-crawly terrorist attack meant to get our attention? We hear bumps in the night these days and instantly remember that it's just our designer jeans rolling around in our industrial dryer. No longer are we afraid to go down into our basements, all alone, in the middle of the night. Because, whatever, that's where the Xbox and HDTV are set up. No, I think these spiders are sending a message. They're like, it's time to start being scared of Mother Nature again, mofos. You want to know what kind of spiders we are? We're wandering spiders, bitches. We wander all over the place. Ain't nobody safe. Not yuppies. Not health nuts who shop at Whole Foods. Not even people who live in frickin' Oklahoma. There's no place to hide. And on that note, this week's Drabble story is called Hide and Seek by Liz Mirzieski. Liz is a self-imposed masochist who teaches middle school kids. Hey, somebody has to take one for the team. We featured her work here before on episode 81 with Chester Clean's Kitchen. Remember, Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words. Send yours into Drabblecast at yahoo.com. Rex was it. He searched the neighborhood treetops, checked behind the bulky roots, and sniffed for the trace signs of Lizzie's hiding place. He heard a giggling from the yellow house, one window open, 
a faint breeze carrying a muffled laugh and a pungent human odor. Bending down, Rex leaned his five-foot-long head into the window, pressing his reptilian eye alongside the opening, but could see nothing. With faith, he reached in and opened his mouth. His tongue wrapped around Lizzie's form, hiding just under the sill, and rolled her in, pulling her outside. You're it, said Rex. Well, our feature story this week is called The Alchemical Automaton Blues by Ian McHugh. Ian is a 2006 graduate of the Clarion West Writers' Workshop. In 2007, he won a quarterly first prize in L. Ron Hubbard's Writers of the Future contest, and in 2008 was awarded the annual gold prize. Since then, he sold a number of short stories to magazines and anthologies in Australia, USA, UK, and Canada. Ian lives in Canberra, Australia, and is a member of the Canberra Speculative Fiction Guild. This story first appeared in Andromeda Spaceways In-Flight Magazine, issue number 15, after it won the short story contest at Conflux, the Australian National Science Fiction Convention, in 2004. So, without further ado, The Alchemical Automaton Blues by Ian McHugh. The golem out back was crying again. With a sigh, I dropped my pen back into the ink pot and sat back to listen to the mournful moaning. Over by the fire, Graham the boarhound woofed in response, but didn't wake. I sighed again. The golem's crying never failed to bring a lump to my throat. I'm one of those who believe that once a golem is activated, it's alive and self-aware and should be treated appropriately. Even a simple guard golem, animated by little more than the three laws of golematics imprinted on the parchment inside its head, needs social contact to maintain its mental well-being. Sadly, our back neighbor was not of the same ethical persuasion. The closest thing to contact this poor golem ever had with its owner was when her bastard kids came out into the yard to throw rocks at it. Otherwise, it was utterly ignored. That golem's crying again, Iggy, Deidre called from the bedroom. We should go and talk to them about it. Yes, we should, I replied automatically. We meant me, of course. I sighed a third time and grumbled irritably under my breath. If one can resolve a disagreement with an ogre by just talking, then it's only because the ogre in question is either too stoned to knock one's teeth down one's throat or is a double-arm, double-leg amputee. One doesn't just talk to an ogre, especially not when she's a magic moss-addled, half-ogrish single mother who entertains her clients at home while her children run amok, and most especially not when her part-time boyfriend is a 240-pound Ladonian giant so recently down from the highlands that he still hasn't washed the woad from his face. My wife, bless her, believes in talking about things. She even persisted for a while in trying to talk directly to the neighbor's miserable golem, which confused the poor creature terribly, as its written instruction to guard its fence warred with its yearning for a kind voice. When it comes to confrontations, however, my wife believes in me doing the talking. 
my personal fears for my own precious hide, and, okay, I admit it, my particular prejudices aside, I knew that talking would get nowhere in this instance. Suggesting to the average ogre that they could treat their golem better would be met, at best, with blank incomprehension. Ogres generally don't consider animals as worthy of decent treatment, let alone artificial constructs like golems. In civilized lands, ogres are barred from owning domestic pets, due to their indiscriminate culinary practices. Unfortunately, in most places, including our beloved city, there are no such constraints on the ownership of golems. I glanced over at the pile of bodies in front of the fire. Graham was sprawled in the customary upside-down boneless heap at the edge of the hearthstones. A long string of drool hung from his floppy upper lip, vibrating gently in time with his snoring. As usual, between the dog and the fire, our pair of foot-high toy golems lay on their backs, feet propped up against Graham, heads toward the flames, baking their little round clay skulls in the heat. Dropsy, unsurprisingly, was completely absorbed in basking himself and utterly oblivious to the rest of his surroundings. Dropsy wasn't the brightest crayon in the box. Deidre and I often joke that the wizard who wrote the spells on his parchment might have been dyslexic. Oopsie was alert, though. His head lifted slightly while he listened. He noticed me watching and looked back at me with round, black eyes. Sad, he said. I was surprised. Toy golems and their full-sized counterparts tend not to like each other very much. Our two terrors delighted in tormenting the neighbor's golem as much as the neighbor's kids did. Their favorite outdoor game, aside from throwing Graham's poop over the front gate at passerbys, was to run up to the back fence and hammer on planks until the guard golem started bellowing at them and then run away so that it got in trouble, but they didn't. Graham thought this was a grand game too, but was too dense to stop barking before he got caught. That Oopsie was affected by the lonely golem's distress was both unexpected and touching. Yes, I agreed. It's very sad. Coming, I called, clattering down the stairs from my study in an avalanche of golems and dog. Dropsy, of course, got himself under my feet and got kicked headfirst down the steps. Oopsie and Graham set up a ferocious clamor at the front door while I put Dropsy right way up again. Threatening mayhem, I shooed the lot of them into the kitchen before opening the door. I looked down. Uh, yes? A bespectacled fawn squinted up at me over a battered clipboard and a nose like the keel of a racing ship. He flashed an identity card at me and bobbed his horned head. Oh, good morning, sir. I'm from the Bureau of Alchemical Automaton Services. Wearily, I asked. Ugh, what have the little horrors done now? I'm sorry, sir. Confusion made his squint even more pronounced. Uh, never mind, I said. So how can I help you? I'm investigating a complaint, sir, made by one of your neighbors, over the back, one house along, about the golem in the house to your rear. Ah, of course. I nodded my understanding. The neighbor in question was a sour old Kurgar dwarf pensioner in his late 280s, who was even more perturbed than me at having a half-ogre whore for a neighbor. When he first came to the old city as a penniless refugee in the middle of the last century, 
This neighborhood was poorer than it is today, to be sure. But, his words, not mine, they didn't tolerate no trash back then. I smiled at the fawn. Perhaps I could weasel my way out of talking to our undesirable neighbor after all. So, he's complained about the noise then. The fawn brightened. Oh, yes, sir. Could you perhaps spare a few moments of your time? Of course, of course. Please come inside. I ushered him through the door and led the way into the kitchen. Oh. The fawn hesitated, confronted at eye level by Graham's drooling chops and bloodshot glare. Graham, on your bed. He slunk over to his mangy blanket in the corner and plopped himself down with a huff. I waved the fawn into a chair and parked myself across the table. He perched awkwardly in the edge of the seat. Fawnish legs bend in the wrong places for human furniture. Oopsie and Dropsy clambered up into a vacant seat and sat side by side, watching us with solemn eyes, their noses just level with the tabletop. The fawn fumbled in his satchel for a moment and produced a tiny imp. Its outsized head jiggled precariously as the fawn set the sleeping, four-inch-high figure on the table. Ooh. Oopsie immediately reached out his stubby fingers toward the imp. I tapped him on the head with a finger, and he subsided, grumbling. So, uh, I guess the Bureau's doing all right at the moment, I said. I mean, if it can afford memory imps for its inspectors. He responded with a brief, tight smile and confided, well, yeah, a bit of funding left over at the end of last year. I had to spend it before Treasury took it back. Now, do you mind if I record, sir? Uh, not at all. Very well. He pinched the imp's ear to wake it. Can I have your name, sir? The imp silently mouthed his words, a heartbeat after the fawn spoke. Oopsie and Dropsy watched in utter fascination. Ignatio Prendergrill. He didn't bat an eyelid. Many people do. Uh, occupation? I'm a university lecturer. You live here all alone, sir? No, my wife Deidre is at work. She's an apothecary. And I see that you're a golem owner yourself, sir? Hmm... I introduced the twin terrors. Oopsie and Dropsy. Both are charity cases. Oopsie was astray. We think he was abused. He had cracks all over him when we found him. Dropsy was a friend's unwanted Equinox gift. He would have been off to the pound and then probably broken up and recycled if we hadn't taken him in. The fawn nodded sagely. So you have noticed the noise from your neighbor's golem? Well, you can hear it now. I replied. Actually, you can even see it. I twisted around in my seat to point out the kitchen window. The golem was a reddish silhouette through the smoky glass, seated on top of its shed while it cried. Oh, how often does it do that, sir? He asked. Uh, most of the time. The poor thing's totally neglected. They never speak to it or interact with it, except for when the kids are throwing rocks at it. It's going out of its mind with loneliness. My wife tried talking to it, but of course that just upset it more because it didn't know what to do. No. 
I interpreted his protosyllabic response to mean something along the lines of, I'm just a man doing his job, sir, rather than someone who necessarily subscribes to all that guff about golems being alive, but I'm too polite to say so. Amazing how much meaning one can pack into a single grunt. So do you think you'll be able to take it away from them and put it into a decent home? He shrugged. Unlikely, sir. It's got shelter and access to water and coal. By the letter of the law, it is in a decent home. Not a lot we can do. He pinched the imp's ear again and it slumped back into sleep. Yeah, to be honest with you, sir, there probably wouldn't be a problem if it wasn't for the boyfriend. I've been round there a few times already, and the golem's actually been pretty malleable when he's not around. Then he comes back, and, well... He shrugged again. So what can you do? He puffed at his cheeks for a moment and thought. Well, he said, drawing out the word. The laws governing the welfare of golems and such like are pretty rudimentary, but the Kurgar gentleman has been keeping a diary of when the golem howls. Yeah, I'll bet he has, I said. And yourself and your other neighbors all substantiate his complaint. We could maybe get a ruling that it's become a public nuisance and have it removed that way. We would need someone to sign a declaration, though. Someone other than the dwarf, you mean? With a pained expression, he nodded. Would it be confidential? Oh, absolutely, sir. Feeling compelled to justify myself, I said... I only ask because, given the way they treat their own golem, I wouldn't put it past them to harm my two, or, or the dog, if they thought they had cause. And of course, my wife and I can't be here all the time. Oh, certainly, sir. I completely understand. He watched me expectantly. I'll sign a declaration, I said, before my courage failed me. Oh, would you, sir? Oh, that would be most helpful. He delved into a satchel, and after some shuffling of papers, produced the correct official pro forma, in triplicate. He pulled out an expensive, and no doubt taxpayer-funded nib pen and ink pot, and handed the lot over to me. He waited patiently while I filled out the form, in triplicate, and signed. Oh, this'll do the trick, sir, he said. I'll get a hearing as soon as I can. I should be able to get an order out right away after that. That's terrific, I said, and meant it. With a sudden spring in his movements, he put the imp and writing paraphernalia back in his satchel, gathered his clipboard, and hopped down from the seat. I'd misjudged him and his ethics regarding golems, it seemed. I stood with him and followed him back to the front door. What'll happen to it after it's removed? Well, we'll have to give them an eight night to remedy the situation of their own accord. Not likely, I think, sir. Then we'll try the SPCAA first, of course, but if they don't have space for it, it'll have to go to the pound, sadly. Poor bugger. Yes.
He stuck out a spidery hand to shake. Well, good day to you, sir. Thank you very much for your time. Not a problem. No, but thank you again. I watched him go, then glanced down at Oopsie, who was peeping around my knees. I guess we'll just have to hope for the best then, won't we? Okay, he said. Sometimes I wonder how much golems really do understand. A few days later, Deidre announced her arrival home from work with her usual cry of, Where's my dinner, wench? I bounded out of the kitchen, grinning like a maniac, grabbed her by the arm and bundled her through the house and out the back door. What? she asked breathlessly, laughing at the same time. What don't you see? I said. She peered around the yard, then stopped, frowned, and did a double take. The golem's gone. Yep. Looks like the guy from Golem Services got his ruling. Deidre hugged me happily. Oh, Iggy, well done, love. I waved her off. Ah, I didn't do anything. Come on, dinner's nearly ready. The golem was still gone the next day, and the one after that. On the day after that, though, I arrived home from the university to find Deidre looking very long in the face. What's wrong? I asked, mildly alarmed. It's back she said. Come see. She led me out into the yard and pointed over the back fence. The neighbor's golem was back on the roof of its shed, mouth open, rocking slightly back and forward where it sat, but the only sound it was making was a hollow rasp of escaping air. I frowned at Deidre in confusion. Look at its poor head, she said, tears glistening in her eyes. I looked and swore softly. Where before the golem's skull had been a smooth orange dome, it was now marred by an ugly ridge of darker clay running around the circumference of its brow. Above the ridge, the clay of its now misshapen cranium was a brownish color that didn't quite match the rest of its body. Damn, I said. They broke its head open. And took away its voice, Deidre finished. I stared at the pathetic creature in revulsion. I couldn't believe what the bastards had done. Never mind that it was clearly a shoddy backyard job by the cheapest, clumsiest hedge wizard imaginable. All they'd bothered to do was take away its voice. They hadn't even tried to have its animating spells changed to take away its longing for companionship. Bloody bastards, I said. I couldn't think of anything else to say, so I said it again. Something bumped against my shin. A hollow clunk followed. Absently, I bent over and set Dropsy back on his feet. He wobbled for a moment, then tottered off towards the house. I put my arm around Deidre's shoulders and followed him inside. Well, that was our story. Hope you enjoyed it. Poor Golem. We're already running a little late this week. We'll catch up on story feedback next time. Keep your ears open for a Drabblecast B-Sides episode coming down the tubes. If you're not subscribed to our other podcast, go to our site, Drabblecast.org, and check out the B-Sides tab at the top to subscribe. 
While you're there, you may perchance confront two glaring orange buttons with which you can donate to us to help us not only keep the show going week to week, but to help us make it better. You can donate once for any amount, or you can subscribe for $5 a month, whatever tickles your pickle. You may also want to buy a t-shirt or get some Drabblecast archive CDs. You'll find that all on the site if you look around. If you're broke or just stingy, you can help us out by blogging about us or telling a friend. Don't be scared of sharing us. All of our content uses a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you can share us all you like. Just don't change it or sell it without asking us. Well, that's all for this week. We'll see you next time. Our staff is made up of co-editors, Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that they didn't tolerate no trash back then. <laughs> <laughs>